Uh, we are going to, um, you can turn to Matthew 26 if you like. Um, while you're doing that, I want to just do a quick, uh, a quick idea. How many of you have ever had a time where you are, let's say you're with your family, you say, we want to go out to eat tonight. And you ask the question, you know, what do you, where do you want to go? And you get multiple different answers, right? And so then it just, you know, well, I want to go get pizza. Well, I want to go get Mexican food. Well, I want to go get hamburgers, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, when there's competing desires or competing wills, uh, it can create some tension. It creates some difficulty. Maybe it's not that. Maybe for some of you, it's you're in school and you're trying to work on a group project and you don't want to be the one that always ends up having to do the entire group project by yourself and it, then everyone else takes credit for it, right? Have you ever been there where you do all the work and everyone else just shares the same grade? I'm not bitter. We're fine. Um, but recognizing that, you know, maybe that's you. You're, you're working on something and one person wants to go about it this way. Another one wants to go about it this way. And you think that this other way is best. Maybe it's at work and you're trying to negotiate a deal. You're trying to navigate a problem, trying to manage a project, trying to um, do something in order to, to go. And you have a pretty clear idea, but other people on your team don't. Now, what ends up happening in those circumstances? Well, a couple of things may develop. One may be that one person in charge just says, this is what we're doing. And regardless of how maybe everyone else feels about it, they just say, okay, well, the, the leader says we're doing that. We're, that's what we're going to do. Maybe there's frustration or grumbling, and it's difficult, but, but that's what happens. Maybe for some, it, it turns into I express what I want, and I'm so upset that someone's not listening and respecting my, my perspective that I remove myself or I get angry, and there's a frustration there. Maybe for some of us, we don't even want to really share what we feel, and we'll just say, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine with liver and onions. I don't care, because we don't want to create conflict. So we don't want to say anything negative because we don't want there to be a conflict with other people. Maybe we get our way and we, are, we stood our ground, we got our way, and halfway through the project, the, the situation, the dynamic, we realize our way was the wrong way, and we don't want to admit it, so we don't. See, when it comes to these ideas of group dynamics, whose will, whose way, what's going to happen, we can all kind of have different responses to those. And many of those times, it leads to frustration or bitterness or, or anger or whatever it may be. And as we are entering into um, the fourth week of our series through the Lord's Prayer, today we are going to go through the idea of when Jesus says, tells us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That some of us, when we have prayers to God, we want him to do what we want. And we think that our way is the right way until halfway through our way we realize we weren't incorrect. Maybe we don't want to really express our prayers to God because we're afraid of conflict. We're afraid he'll be mad at us. Maybe some of us have in our minds, when we say, God, may your will be done, we automatically assume that God's going to call us to do the last thing in the world we'd ever want to do. So instead of praying your will be done, we just pray very safe prayers. You know, watch over me today, Lord. Bless this meal, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Are those prayers bad? No. But is it following the example that Jesus calls us to follow when he says, here's how you ought to pray. In fact, Matthew 6, 9 and 10 is going to be on the screen. 
And this is, we're just kind of doing a quick review of what we've listened to the past few weeks already. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the first week we talked about Father in heaven specifically encounters with God. Second week, uh, Dan Goodham shared with us about the idea of holy is God's name. Last week, we looked at God's kingdom come, and then this week, we're looking at your will be done. And the reason on the screen that we have on earth as it is in heaven highlighted there is because one of the commentators or some of the commentators I was looking at was sharing about how whenever, when I learned this prayer growing up, it would always be, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Almost like your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that was the only way that that applied to. So as it... on excuse me, on earth as it is in heaven, would think it's just connecting to your will be done. Maybe a similar example is for young kids when they're learning the alphabet and you say A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, and then people think that elemento is like one letter, right? Because they all just bleed together, like elemento. How do you spell that? You know, so it's this idea we kind of maybe just tacked it on just to the request that God's will be done. But yet, there's, the punctuation is not, it's, there's no punctuation in the same way that we see it in our English Bible. And, and the commentators are saying, on earth as it is in heaven, actually refers to all of those requests. In other words, it's, God, holy be your name on earth as it is in heaven. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God... We, we know his name is holy in heaven. In fact, the, the, the glimpses we get of the throne room in heaven are people and the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That his kingdom has already come. He's, his reign is in full bloom in heaven. So that's there. And so it says, God, may your name be just as holy here on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come, that we, we know that God's reign in heaven is perfect and absolute. Right now here on earth, it's, it's already started with Jesus coming, but it's not yet consummated. It's not yet completed. So we pray that that would happen. And then lastly, for our purposes for today, we say, God, your will be done. We know in heaven that if God says this is what's going to happen, the angels willingly, lovingly, quickly, obediently follow what he says. Yet so often we don't immediately, obediently, willingly do God's will. We hedge our bets. We ask clarifying questions. We pray safe prayers. We don't fully say, we may say with our lips, God, your will be done. In reality, we say, God, I want my will to be done. Will you bless my will and allow me to think it's yours? We may not say it that way, but our prayers may reveal that that is the condition or that's the, the thought process that we may walk through. So what I want to do is, is, is take a couple, a moment to, to ask a question because when we ask, when we pray prayers like holy be your name or your kingdom come or your will be done, we ask that for a very important reason. So one of the questions we're asking today is why would Jesus want us to pray your will be done? Because I mean, God is God, right? Couldn't he just make his will be done regardless of what our prayers are to, that we don't even need to pray it because, you know, he's, he's God and he could just make things how, the, how he wants them and, and all that. 
So there's a portion of that, that that is absolutely true, but yet the reason that we pray that, just like Dan Goodham shared with us two weeks ago, we don't pray God holy is your name because his name's not already holy. We pray it as a reminder to ourselves to see it as holy. We don't pray that God's kingdom come because it's not going to come. We pray that we would see it and we would be part of the coming of it. And we, don't, and we pray your will be done. Why? Because God gives us the free will. He gives us the free will, which means that you and I have the ability to choose whether to have his will be done or our own. When the garden of Gethsemane was there and in the beginning with Adam and Eve and God says there's a tree in the very center of the garden, the knowledge of, of good and evil. You can eat from any tree except for that one. That we wonder why did God put into the garden of Eden something that could have caused the fall of man to take place? Why did he even give that free will choice to Adam and Eve? Why didn't he just give only trees that were good to eat and only trees that would be okay to eat? Why was there a rule in the middle of the garden that would potentially create the dynamic in which men could choose and women could choose to disobey him and his will and to pursue their own? C.S. Lewis asks this question in Mere Christianity. He says this, Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, which is what we acknowledged, we just mentioned that, that can create the dynamic in which there can be rebellion. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. Here's what, this, here's what we get at here. Later in this section, C.S. Lewis talks about how if we were all automatons or if we were all robots that just automatically, God says do this and we just robotically do that. God says go there and we just robotically did that. If we were automatons, if we were working automatically without any sort of free will, then we would say, you know, do you love me? He's like, yes, I love you. And it's a robotic response. It's, it's because we were programmed to follow a specific set of actions, there's no choice, there's no will to decide to love God. We would just be forced to do it. So why is that important? Because God values love as the highest value in the universe. So that means in order for love to be the highest value in our universe, all of us, have to have the choice to choose to love him rather than just be forced to love him. We have to make the choice to say either, God, I want to do what I want to do. I want to take the fruit when I'm tempted. I want to be able to do my will my way when I want it. I want to be able to do that. And it's the ability to have the choice. It's the free will decision that allows for us that when we see that path and we say, okay, I know I can choose my own will and my own way and take the fruit and disobey and whatever it may be, or I could choose to love God. But because there's a choice, that's what allows me to look down this road and then see God down this road and choose to go here because I want to love him in such a way that it's my choice not a robot that says, I must go this way. So yes, free will 
created a space where evil could take place. But it's also the only way that a space can be created for love to be the highest value in our universe. And so this creates a little bit of tension here because we, we might say, God, here are the prayers I want, and here's how I want you to do it because my way is better. And we can ask God for prayers. We can share with him all of our emotions, our anger, our sadness, our fear, our joy, our excitement. We can share anything with God. He is big enough to handle it all. And if you need proof of that, just read the book of Psalms. And the depths to which the psalmist, often David, but not only David, the depths to which he cries out in anger, sadness, fear. It's not don't cry out to God. But it is saying when we pray, when we express what we want to have happen or maybe what we don't want to happen, we also say, but God, your will be done, not mine. Robert Law has a quotation that uh, I want to share with you on the screen. And it says this. Prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. In other words, if I go into my time of prayer, spending the entire time trying to convince God to do what I think is best, then have I really placed him on the throne of my heart? Or like we talked about last week, am I sitting on the throne and I want him to do my bidding? If, if we're saying, God, I want you to do what I want in heaven, and if you don't, then I'm going to get bitter, I'm going to reject, I'm going to get sad, I'm going to run away. I'm going to go choose to take the fruit. I'm going to choose my own will, my own way. If, if that's the dynamic that we have where it's my way or the highway when it comes to God, then we are going to spend our entire lives on the highway to where we don't want to go unless we you turn unless we repent, which again just means to make a 180-degree turn and go in the opposite direction. So, no matter how far down the road, this road you may be, your will, your way, it is never too late to turn back around. It is never too late to run to the Father. And it's never too late to feel the warmth of his embrace when he brings you back into the fold, when he welcomes you back into the home, when he makes you a, a beloved child of his once again, and when he makes you part of the inheritance again. It's never too late. But we do need to make the choice. Because of our free will, we need to make the choice to choose to love him Rather than just keep going down the wrong road and say, man, this is really tough. We need to stop, U-turn, and come back to the Father. But this idea of a, of a mighty instrument or prayer is an instrument, I want to sit on that for a moment. Because as Robert Law talks about it, when I think of an instrument, sometimes I think of a specific tool that is used for, for whatever. So, um, but you can also just think of like a musical instrument, right? And so um, I played the flute when I was younger. I know. Be impressed. And... Um, uh, my crowning achievement was that I was, you got to remember, I just turned 37. And so uh, when I was in middle school um, in 1997, I was a seventh grader when uh, Titanic came out. So we, we, like, we learned my heart will go on uh, on the flute. It was the manliest moment of my life. And so um, recognizing that, you know, I play, and then sometimes, you know, you would recognize that maybe, maybe you're a little, you're a little out of tune. Like, you don't sound connected to everybody else, or you don't, it doesn't sound as good as it once did, or how it should be. 
Now, if I try to think just by my own ear what it sounds like, oh, this is what, what it sounds good. This, is, this must be what an A flat sounds like. And I just go, ah, you know, whatever. Like, if I think that, then, and I think, okay, this is what it sounds like, and then I try to sing a whole song within that false understanding of, you know, music, then the entire song is going to be off. The entire song is going to be out of tune. And there has to be a standard by which we say, okay, that is not an A-flat. That's just sad. Here's what an A-flat sounds like. And we align ourselves or we make ourselves in tune with the standard. That one of our points we're going to share today, we're going to hit on a couple different times in the time we have remaining, is that God's will is for our will to be in tune with his will. God's will is for our will to be in tune with his will. Uh, at my old church years ago, I was a, um, like, I, I enjoy singing. Um, and there was um, a time when they were doing, like, worship leader uh, tryouts uh, for people who want to be on the worship band. And so, um, so picture, like, American Idol, but with people you know and you have to see all of the time. And so uh, there was a, a circle of other worship leaders on the stage here. And they, ta- they asked me to like sing like a, the melody of a certain song. Um, I don't remember which one it was. So sang it. Like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And then one of the worship leaders, one of my friends is like, okay, now can you harmonize to this? You may have well asked me to speak Japanese backwards. Like, I don't know how harmonies work. And so like, I'd be like, we fall down we lay our crown you know like I just didn't know how to harmonize and so uh you know it was was one of those where they did ask me to be on a worship team uh but they conveniently only asked me to be on a worship team the one service of the weekend that I already had high school ministry I'm not taking it personally I just don't talk to those people anymore so um no it's one of those where just recognize like okay like you can sing we, we can do our best, but if we're not in harmony or in tune with the song we're supposed to sing, if our life song is all about us, we might think it sounds great. But if it's not connected to the standard of, of tuned into the right notes or singing along with the melody, then we are missing out on the life we're called to live. And we are misunderstanding the importance of God's will, that God's will is for our will to be in tune with his will. So let's let's unpack this a little bit more, looking at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, because in Matthew 26, we see here that this prayer, this is how you ought to pray, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not just how Jesus told people how to pray. In his time of great anguish and sorrow, this prayer is the prayer that he prayed. So let's read the first few verses of Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. And then we're going to land on a couple verses um, in a moment. But let's set the scene here. This is just after the Last Supper, the Passover meal they had together. This is just after um, him talking about the bread and the cup. This is him knowing that he's going to be betrayed. Judas had already left. And he knows that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows what he's about to face. And he asks three of his closest friends to go with him into the garden and to pray nearby. Verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who are uh, James and John. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And we're going to stop there for a few moments because let's unpack something together. We know people that um, either we've seen stories or, or read books or we know people who know that they're going to die, even they're going to die for a good cause. And they face it with, with bravery. They, they face it knowing, okay, this is what needs to happen. And one of us, we, or some of us, we might take that picture in mind and then say, you know, I know Jesus didn't want to die, but does it stir within us some idea of like, how come we know people who have faced death in a way that maybe isn't as sorrowful or troubled or in anguish as Jesus? Why, why is that? And it's important for us to note that yes, Jesus did not want to die. But what troubled him and created more anguish in his soul was not just physical death. It was recognizing that while he was going to be on the cross, he would be separated from God the Father and God the Spirit for the very first time in his existence. Then in Genesis 1, we see that Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2, the, the Spirit hovered over the earth. And then Colossians 1 talks about how Jesus, it was in him and through him all things were made. So from the very beginning, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were in unity, a trinity together, in relationship, community together. And they experienced that together. And then Jesus, fully God, was sent down to earth to live a perfect life, sinless life, to set an example for us, to die a horrible death, to, to take the burden of our sin, past, present, and future, upon himself, to be a perfect sacrifice without blemish, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, so that by receiving the gift of eternal life he offers, we could be with him forever and live for him now and experience eternity with him, Father. So Jesus, yes, he didn't want to die. But even more so, he recognized that for the very first time in all of existence, because of the weight of the sin, that at Jesus' own words, by quoting Psalm 22, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Turned his face away. And Jesus knew what it was like to be separated from the Father. He knew it was God's will to go through that for our sake, but it doesn't mean he was looking forward to that separation. And yet, and yet, many of us and many of those we love willingly choose to separate ourselves from God. The thing that caused Jesus great anguish and sorrow and pain and heartache separation from the Father. If we're honest with ourselves, when we choose our will, our way, our desires, the way we want them, when we want them, instead of choosing with our free will to follow and surrender to God, then it's like we're choosing that which made Jesus the saddest. We are choosing to separate ourselves from God's will, God's way. 
So Jesus says, Lord, if take this cup, please, but not as I will, as you will. Let's follow the story along, verse 40. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. In this prayer, Jesus models for us calling, God on, calling upon God as Father. He models for us to be able to ask what it is that we want from God. Don't be afraid to ask for things. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that he would have all the power in the world to be able to send down angels and protect himself. He knew what he was going to face. And so we can ask for different things in prayer. God can handle our prayers. But we also need to see how he modeled that the prayer was closed with your will be done. It doesn't mean that we just say, God, I don't, I don't care what happens. Just your will be done. It's, we can ask. We can open. We can share. But it means that in the end, we could say, God, here's what I would like. I would like for what I think is good from my perspective to be what you choose. But instead of going down my will and my way and taking the fruit and having self-will or, excuse me, free will mean I'm the one who's in charge. I surrender myself to you, and, and I'll go your way, whatever it is. I may want that, but I want you more than I want that. So what I want to do is recognize what C.S. Lewis says this, and kind of in light of this idea that God's will is for our will to be in tune with his will. C.S. Lewis then asks, he brings up this point. It says, of course, God knew what would happen if people, if they used their freedom the wrong way. And apparently, he thought it worth the risk. He knew that sin would separate people from him. He knew that sin would create division and frustration and pain and heartache amongst people. He knew that by providing a free will option to disobey God or to turn and choose our own will and way, that by doing that, he knew that that was an option and that would be a route that many people would take. But it was worth it to him to, to know that love is the greatest value of the universe, the highest value. And so in order to have people that he loved so much that he created and formed and breathed life into and put upon this earth, in order for them to reciprocate that love, they had to have a choice to disobey. And because we have the choice to disobey, when we choose to obey, it's all the more powerful and beautiful and wonderful to be called children of God, because that is what we are when we do those things. So here's what ends up happening. And I want to take a couple moments because if we could go back to um, Matthew 26, verse 42 on the screen, you'll notice that there are, two, um, there are two sections highlighted. In verse 39 and in 42, I highlighted two specific points. The first one, or the one we've been talking about rather, is the emphasis on Jesus' surrendering to God's will. 
Verse 39 says, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42 saying, in the end, your will be done. But there's another part in there right above that, that there's just this highlight about the, word, the, the idea of the cup, this cup. And what is it that Jesus is talking about here? Because we have to remember, again, that from the very beginning in the garden, because Adam and Eve sinned, there had to be a sacrifice to cover their shame. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves, and yet there had to be a, a calf skin, an animal skin that would cover their shame. Hebrews 9 puts it this way, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So God knew free will had to exist in order to make love the highest value. He knew that that meant that some would choose to reject him in sin and, and not repent from that sin. But he also knew that while we are all sinners, he could send Jesus to die for us and demonstrate his love for us in that way. And so this idea of the cup, it takes us back to the meal that the, the Jewish um, people celebrate every year. And it takes us back to the meal that Jesus and his disciples had just finished taking. It was the Passover meal. For grad school last year, um, I took a history of ancient Israel class, and part of that class was taking or doing a Passover meal with our family. And so um, there's certain, like, everything is symbolic there. And if you were to look at um, the description of Passover in, in Exodus 12 and, and looking at what it means, every single part of that has meaning. And so every food, every, every dynamic, every prayer that is prayed, there's a call and response. All of it has this meaning to do what? To remind the Jewish people of how, how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. How? Through the different plagues and then through the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb that, whose blood was spread out upon the doorstep so that the angel of the Lord would pass over every house, hence the name Passover, would pass over every house that had the blood of the lamb protecting it. And so every year, Jewish people would celebrate the Passover, and they still do, but in Jesus' time, this is the meal. They're getting prepared for the Passover. And in the Passover, again, there's a lot of symbolism that points back to the Exodus story, but I want to specifically highlight this idea of the cup. Because there are four different cups in the Passover meal. The first one is the cup of sanctification. The second one is the cup of plagues, where they remember the plagues uh, in Egypt. The third one is the cup of redemption. And the fourth one is the cup of praise or consummation. And so when, we, when Jesus is praying in the garden, saying, Lord, if you could take this cup, from me, we, It would behoove us or benefit us to see where, when, would, when did he just speak about the cup recently? Well, he spoke about it when he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. What does this mean? Well, there's a very important clue about this cup specifically. Because again, there's four cups in the Passover meal. There's an important clue in the Luke version of the Last Supper, because in the Luke version, it says, after the meal, Jesus took the cup. The cup of sanctification and the cup of plagues were part of the meal. Once the meal was completed, then they would take the cup of redemption. So picture this. 
They're sitting there. There's a bread, piece of bread that's called the bread of affliction, and it's got stripes upon it, and it's got pierced um, little holes on it. So it's the bread of affliction that the Messiah would be afflicted for the people, that he would be pierced for their transgressions. And by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. So he takes the bread and said, this is my body. I'm going to face affliction for you. And then after the meal, he takes the cup. And it's the cup of redemption. He says, this is my blood. Poured out for you the blood of a new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying that it is by my blood that you will be redeemed. Because of the sin in the garden, we need the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And in the very, during the very meal that they celebrated that a lamb of God's blood would protect the people so that they would be passed over and that they would be able to be free from slavery in Egypt, he's saying, now I am the new covenant. I am the one that through my blood as the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, you are going to be passed over sin and judgment. You are going to be received into eternal life. You are going to be made whole. You are going to be made new. You are going to have eternal life because the Lamb of God is freeing us, not from the slavery of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin and death. He says, this is the cup. And so when it's just later that evening, in our Bible, it's 10 or so verses later, he says, God, may this, can this cup be taken from me? It's not simply poetic language. Yes, it, it paints the picture, but... He's saying this cup of redemption, is there any way that people can be redeemed, excuse me, without me experiencing this horrible death and without me experiencing separation from you? Because if there is, please take it. But if there's not, your will be done. So we come to the close of our time together this morning and we remember this, or we, we look at the idea that all of us right now in this moment have the free will to choose to go our own will, our own way, and to say, God, will you bless my will? Or we all have in this moment the free will to choose God's will, God's way, and say, your will be done. I'm concluding a C.S. Lewis class for grad school for the past five weeks. I've read five or six of his books. Um, it's been a fantastic class. And this quotation, I alluded it to, uh, to, excuse me, last week in the first service, but I didn't in the second because I realized it's more applicable for this week. It's in the story of the great divorce when uh, the story is a, a, a ghost or a man. He enters into this gray town, which is symbolic of hell. And he goes on this bus and he meets other ghosts. He meets other people who are dead and in hell. And they go to a place that is like heaven, and they, and they meet, and they have to surrender the idols of their lives. They have to surrender that which holds them back from fully embracing God. It's, it's the thing that maybe it's lust for some, maybe it's pride, maybe it's unfair justice. They think that, oh, I, I don't need God. I don't need that because I'm a good person. There's a whole bunch of different ones. Right in the middle of the book, this ghost meets a guide, a spirit guide who helps him. Not like a spirit guide that you hear about now, but a guide who is someone who is a solid person in heaven. And he talks about that. He says this, because the curious ghost says, you know, 
What if there's people who don't even have a chance to come up here to be in heaven and have a chance to repent and be redeemed? And the Spirit says, no, they are. And here's what he says. He says, ultimately, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. What does this mean? He says that everyone who wants to enter into the kingdom of God and right relationship with God has the opportunity to do so. So all of us, because of the free will he gave so that love would be the highest value in the universe, we all have our choice and we either say to God, us and God, your will be done. What you want in your way, I surrender myself. I want what you want for me. I align myself to you. I make myself in tune with you. I want to sing in harmony to your melody because God's will is for our will to be in tune with his will. God, your will be done. Or the people, the second group here are the people that, to whom God says, your will be done. Because when we are always on this path of choosing our will, our way, rejecting God through our free will because we want what we want, what we're saying is like what made Jesus so sorrowful and in anguish was that he was going to be separated from God. And when you are on this path to the degree that many of us have been, are still, and those we know are, We've chosen that choice, made that choice so many times that we've chosen to be separated from God. And so that's the second group when God says, you've chosen your entire life here on earth to be separated from me. So in the end, you will get your will for eternity. You will be separated from me for eternity. The offer is there to repent at any time. The invitation is there to U-turn and come back. Jesus made the way so that our sinfulness, or our sinfulness and his holiness could be bridged the gap through Jesus Christ and his cross that we can receive that gift. So all of us, as we close this morning, need to ask ourselves, which road are we on? And whose will are we ultimately praying would be done? in our lives. Ours, which leads to separation for him forever, or his, which leads to intimacy and relationship with him now and forever. Because God's will is for our will to be in tune with his will. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that, Lord, you hear our prayers. We thank you that you love us so much that even when we choose to willingly disobey or willingly go another direction, God, that you saw love as such an important value that you knew people would fall and choose to separate themselves from you. And yet, in order for there to be a true love relationship with you, you knew that free will had to exist. So God, may we, in this moment, exercise our free will that if we're on the, the path of our own will and our own way, Lord, may we stop, may we repent by you turning and coming back to you. And if we're people who are saying your will be done, God, may you help us to know that we could pray anything and everything just as Jesus wanted that cup to be taken. But ultimately, like Jesus, we call upon you as Father. We ask for prayer or what we want. 
but we also ultimately surrender our will to yours. So thank you that it was your will that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, and raised to new life so that we could experience eternal life with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.